We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Paul McLeod, politics editor for BuzzFeed Canada. Hey, how's it going? I'm all right. Welcome back to Canada Land Shortcuts. Thanks. Great to be here in voice. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Kevin Shea, Matt McCann, Galen, Simon Thibault, Dizwadif, Tim and Maria, Natasha Fairweather, Jono, and Sarah Angel. Sarah, why did you decide to be awesome? Because you are awesome, and your team is awesome, and Canada Land is the most original, thought-provoking, and hardest-working social and political commentary available. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks. Paul, have we spoken about FreshBooks before? Have you had the pleasure? No, no, no. Please talk my ear off about it. FreshBooks is the app, the service, the tool that you need to use. In 2016, if you haven't gotten your act together yet to get your billing online through this service, this is a great time to start and take advantage of their 30-day free trial. Painless billing, cloud accounting, everything from tracking your time, filing your invoices with their mobile app where you just take a picture of your receipt, throw away the paper, and uh, neat little features like being able to check when the client has viewed the invoice, neat little features like being able to request an advance of 5 or 10% before you start the work, great stuff like that, very freelancer-focused, very small business person entrepreneur-focused, freshbooks.com. Check it out. Tell them who sent you. You will be doing the show a favor. See, this is perfect because I'd been using stalebooks.com and I was not satisfied with their service, so now I know. Yeah, uh, FreshBooks is way better than stalebooks. Fuck stalebooks. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Paul, here's Rosemary Barton on CBC talking about the Liberals' plan to bring in Syrian refugees. Tomorrow, the government will finally release details of its plan to resettle 25,000 Syrian refugees. CBC News reported last night that the plan will be limited to women, children and families. Unaccompanied men will not be part of the program. Uh, News that we reported last night that no unaccompanied males will be part of the uh, Liberal plan to bring in Syrian refugees. We reported uh, last night the focus on children... 
uh, women, families, unaccompanied men are left out. Almost a 40-day timeline here to bring in this many yeah. people, right? At, at, at great cost, at great expense, uh, $1.2 billion over six years, and a lot of those costs up front because of the airlift. Paul, that was Rosemary Barton on the CBC talking about the plan to bring in these Syrian refugees. Uh, anything wrong with what you just heard? Yeah, there were uh, several of the things that we just heard turned out to not be true. Part of it was broadly right. The part about there being no unaccompanied young men is sort of the broad stroke of that is correct, but but the details are not. Uh, essentially what the government is doing is they're prioritizing most vulnerable groups, so women, children, families. They're not going to be taking in as many young men who are unaccompanied because statistically they are the highest risk to commit violent acts. But it is not a blanket ban if young unaccompanied men are uh, being persecuted, say, in specific, the one thing that's been repeatedly mentioned is for their sexuality, for, or for their uh, sexual orientation, they will be allowed in. If it's through a private sponsorship, they will be allowed in. The cost, according to the Liberals, is about $678 million, it turns out, which is about half of what the CBC reported. There were other aspects about how they're going to be staying in camps. On military bases, these refugees, when they come to Canada, that, it turns out, is not the plan. That is a contingency in certain situations if they just can't move through people fast enough. But the plan is for people to get processed in Canada and then basically be shipped out to the communities where they'll be starting their new lives. So a lot of what was what came out in the day or two before yesterday, before the, the plan finally came out, uh, it turned out to be just wrong. So how did Rosemary Barton get the wrong idea? How did the media get all this uh, incorrect information? Well, it was leaked. Uh, Rosie and uh, some was leaked to the CBC. Uh, there was a draft plan leaked to the National Post as well. Uh, there were just a series of leaks that came out in the days before the plan uh, was fully released. You know, and the big one being we're going to bring in, you know, about 1,000 people a week or 5,000 people a week and all this to meet the deadline. Well, of course, when the plan actually came out, we know we're not meeting that initial December 31st deadline. We're pushing it way back into next year. So basically everything that was reported in the lead-up to this was either roughly or entirely inaccurate, and it all came from leaks from anonymous sources. Okay, in the past, government would leak information to sort of test it out. They'd set, like, a test balloon out with some information to see how the media and the public would respond. Yeah. You've suggested, you've written about how the media got this all wrong in a piece uh, on BuzzFeed, and you said that you think that this might be somebody screwing with the liberals, not a liberal sort of strategizing this to test the weather, but instead somebody screwing with them. Uh, can you tell me more about that? Yeah, initially I thought that's exactly what it was. That okay, the liberals are leaking this out in advance a little bit, trying to you know test uh, the public opinion, and then they'll make their final decision. The people I talked to were adamant that was not the case, and. The more you look at it, the more that doesn't actually really make sense. There were just things that came up that just made the plan look really bad that we now know were totally inaccurate uh, and that were leaked so late in the game that presumably the decisions would have already been made to go in the other direction. It just, it did look like these were things that were discussed in the early levels that someone took and handed out to the media, but it wasn't actually the liberals themselves. Of course, we don't know who put it out there, but it had the effect of making the plan look pretty bad, which is where I think at a certain point the Liberals did get involved and start leaking out some positive news to sort of counteract the misinformation that was already out there. We had Conservatives like basically criticizing the Liberals in advance of this, saying that this is, this is uh, we're rushing this, we're not doing our due diligence, and then you're saying that the leaked information sort of supported that idea that the Liberals are screwing this up because we're just going to rush them all in here, we're going to throw them in military bases, we're excluding single men, we're, we're just 
discriminating in, in, in this way that it turns out that there's like sort that's sort of true because if we prioritize families and people who are uh, vulnerable because they're gay then and you've got like a million people who want out yeah there's enough truth that we know that it didn't come from you know no one like it came from someone who had some knowledge of this plan it's just that the the information was either out of date or we don't know if it was intentionally misleading. I don't know that. But the end result was that it was wrong. And the reason I'm writing about this is because this type of thing tends to happen. You have these leaks that come out, and, and sometimes they are just wrong. And then we as a media never really acknowledge it or explain what happened or go back. We just sort of push forward and pretend we never reported anything that, anything that was wrong. And there is a lot of that in this situation. It's interesting to look at this because, okay, so you sort of speculate that there might be some sort of um, conservative loyal members of the civil service who are trying to trip up the conservatives and leaking. Yeah, and just to guess, I truly don't know where the information came from. It was one of the possibilities I threw out in the piece uh, that, I mean, we saw this in the opposite side. When the conservatives first came in, there were some liberals who were, who were still in the civil service that were leaking stuff about them, uh, but that just got really, really crushed after a while. So for the last few years, we haven't seen any of that. And then the tables flip, and now it looks like we're starting to see it again. Rosie Barton is standing by her story, by the way. Do you know why she's doing that? It sounds like, I mean, the plan came out, and it's different than what she reported. I tried to have that conversation with her. It ended up being very brief, I think partly because she is over in Europe right now, covering Justin Trudeau heading to the UN Climate Change Summit. So she probably didn't have a lot of time, but, you know, we discussed enough to say that she stood by the story. I kind of put it to her, some of the things that I thought were inaccurate, but we didn't uh, we didn't really have time to go into the details, so I don't uh, I don't really know beyond she says she stands by it. Would you rather have tight message control from government like we had under the Conservatives, or would you rather have leaks that turn out to be fake? Well, I think all reporters, whether we want to admit it or not, have a lot more fun in, an envir- in a, a high-leak environment. It's always fun when someone comes to you with a story or with a document or, you know, whatever, and uh, you can usually see the agenda of the person, but you think, well, whatever, if it's accurate, then it doesn't really matter if you the oldest example in the book, of course, is like an opposition party. An opposition party comes to you with uh, something embarrassing about the government, and you know that they're doing it for their own reasons. But as long as the story checks out, well, you know, it's all fair game. That's just how Ottawa works. For me, where that starts to become a different thing is when the stories don't ultimately check out and when they turn out to not be true. Well, then that becomes really problematic to me. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, it's not even politics. Anytime information comes out, it's usually because somebody has an agenda. Yeah. But that doesn't make true things false. Yeah. People have an agenda to bring things to the press. It's still a fact is a fact no matter where it comes from. But when you get into the hall of mirrors of parties intentionally leaking misinformation about their own policies, whether to test things out or to trip up the media, to discredit the media, opposition parties trying to spin the media. There's all sorts of games that get played. Was that maybe, you know, an undiscussed bright side of the tight message control under the conservatives is that there was just more discipline in messaging? Oh, definitely more discipline in messaging. And they definitely wanted it that way. And the liberals have never just had that in their DNA. They've been much, I mean, the Christian Martin years were a classic example. You had just leaks of what was going on left, right, and center. And ever since then, even in the opposition, you know, the liberals have been really good at finding stuff and just knowing who to leak to and building those relationships. And even so far in government, they've done that with some good news pieces 
where they'll they'll give people a bit of a heads up. And I expect that to continue. That's just how the liberals operate. I don't think they really expected this so immediately, though, that this flip side, this sort of backfiring, where now other people in the government are going to be leaking information that's going to look bad. It's too soon to say, but this, if, that's, if this keeps happening, we're going to have a lot of dueling leaks uh, to reporters about things that are coming up. And uh, yeah, ultimately, reporters are going to have a lot of fun with that, but it's going to be really confusing for the readers. Can we draw any kind of relationship between that and what happened in Ottawa this week? Uh, your buddy Justin Ling at Vice, he said that there was some kind of a kerfuffle that maybe you can explain that I don't understand where it led to Justin Ling saying that the Liberals communications plan is showing signs of returning to a Harper-esque kind of message control and, and lack of availability of ministers for comment. What the hell happened? Just bear with me for a moment. I will try to explain this in about 30 seconds. It's very – it's sort of weird and insidery and complicated, but I'll try to give a 30-second explanation. So traditionally – cabinet meetings, the meetings of the, of the federal cabinet ministers, reporters would always stand around outside and ask some questions afterwards. This got shut down during the Harper government. First they said, oh, you can't stand here, we're going to move you downstairs. And then eventually they just stopped going downstairs, and then eventually they stopped telling us when cabinet meetings were all together. The liberals promised to reverse that, and they have told us when the cabinet meetings are, we've been standing around, but then they started to do the very first thing that the Harper government did. They said, well, we want to scrum downstairs and answer questions downstairs because downstairs is much better lighting and much better, much better visuals. Uh, and the reporter said, no, we want to stay upstairs because this looks like a slippery slope. And if we do this, then you're going to start sneaking out the back. And it led to this huge standoff, this absurd standoff where the reporters are all on the third floor asking questions, and the ministers were all saying, well, I'll answer your questions downstairs, and they would go downstairs where no reporters were, and so there was no one there to ask them anything, and that just went on for about an hour, and could happen again next week. Okay, so the ministers are downstairs waiting for the reporters, and the reporters are defiantly upstairs saying, no, we're going to talk to you here. People on Twitter are saying, why, uh, why are you being a bunch of babies? Why don't you just go downstairs where the ministers are? And, and the journalists had a pretty good explanation as to why that is, they want to die on that hill. No, we're, we're, this is going to happen upstairs or nowhere at all, because it's easier for the ministers to sneak away if it's downstairs? Yeah, because there's other there's other exits, essentially. So if everyone's downstairs and the meeting's upstairs, any cabinet minister who's under heat who doesn't want to face the media can just essentially go out the back and avoid us. So that's the root of it. I think this is just one of these growing pains that are going to get worked out. I suspect the ultimate solution will be that ministers will scrum downstairs, but reporters can still hang out upstairs and catch a minister if they're trying to leave at the back, and everyone will be, if not happy, will at least be the usual level, level of miserable, and life will move on. And, you know, one way or another, we're still getting more access than we got under the Conservatives, so that's been nice. The, the press corps, the press gallery here, the Liberals, uh, I mean, we're going to chafe against each other for a while as we try to figure out this new relationship. The other thought of it is there are actually some reporters who want to do it downstairs because there's a lot more room and there's, the print reporters get better access downstairs because the TV reporters tend to monopolize the upstairs. It's just this very, it's a lot of egos and there's a lot of different ways to look at it. But ultimately, I think it's going to be fine. I think I think we're going to have access to the third floor and that's really the big thing. But uh, who knows? We might have weeks and weeks of this, of this crazy standoff where ministers are all standing on one floor taking questions from no one and reporters are upstairs asking questions of no one. Who knows? 
If we're going to criticize uh, news stories this week, we have to criticize one of our own. Uh, did you read our coverage of the ATIP reform in Newfoundland? I did, yeah, I did. You've got some familiarity with this. Uh, why don't you try to summarize this for our listeners? So Jacob Boone, who, uh, full disclosure, is a friend of mine from back in Halifax, I suspect what happened is he got tipped off to this access to information law uh, from the Center for Law and Democracy, which who do great work and advocacy for freedom of information. They're based at Halifax. I think they tipped him off to this law in Newfoundland, which they're big supporters of. So Jacob went in, did a story, interviewed the minister in charge. The minister told him about how this, how, how he was an orphan, and when he was growing up in Newfoundland, he tried to get more information about his upbringing, and then was stymied by the access to information law there. And now he's this big free speech champion, and it was a, it was sort of a great personal glimpse and frame of a of a bit of a wonky story it was entirely bullshit it, it just wasn't <laughs> you guys kind of got played what actually happened was that the progressive conservatives were uh about back in 2012 passed an incredibly regressive law that gutted the access to information system they miscalculated how this was going to play in the public it became a very unpopular thing. So later, to try to save face and backpedal, they set up a third-party commission. This third-party commission crafted this great new legislation. They just enacted it. This minister, who is now the champion of free speech, actually defended the, the previous terrible legislation. Uh, so it just lacked all of the context, essentially, to uh, into what this was happening. That is uh, pretty much the story, uh, Jacob Boone. The only thing I'll take issue with is the idea. I mean, I guess we, to say that we got played suggests that the politician was peddling the story that his own search for his adoptive parents is why he's crusading for access to information. Jacob tells us that he, he came across that angle and it was Jacob who thought that was a great angle. It wasn't that he got he got spun by a politician and, and we have no reason to doubt him and we've looked into it because we, we were curious as well, how did this happen? And then we ran a, a follow-up piece by James McLeod who basically provided all the context that our first piece was lacking. So that's certainly uh, not our finest hour and we, we've done what we can. What was great about James's piece is the, fu- the final paragraph got a lot of attention because it really sort of hammered home the importance of getting stories like this right because he said, you know, we can't just count on politicians to do the right thing and give us more access. If we want more access, we have to fight for it by threatening to throw them out of power. And that's the only time they really start to listen. Well, taken as a whole, I'm very happy with our coverage of this, but but we're trying to like, uh, you know, figure out what lesson to learn from it. And uh, I'm curious, uh, you know, because you're from out east, we're way too Toronto-centric. We try to do media coverage from all around the country. People say, well, where was, where was a fact checker on this? And, and nobody except for magazines has fact checkers. What we try to right. do is rely on freelancers from different parts of the country to come to us and, and, and bring the context. Of course, Jacob is from Halifax. This was a Newfoundland story. And we want to continue to take in these pitches from people all over the country, but we want to get it right. And I, and we don't have the resources to go through. And the thing is, if we had a fact checker, there was no fact that was incorrect in the first piece. Every fact was technically correct, but the context was, was just not there. To glorify this politician when, in fact, he had been completely against the legislation, it, it was a contextual thing that we missed entirely. We were talking about – I want to get your thoughts on this. I'm thinking of throwing this to our audience out there. People say, like, how can we help the show beyond supporting it on Patreon? Instead of doing a fact check, which is just going to be technically impossible, I'm wondering if we can do like a reality check. 
I'm wondering if we could kind of put together a network of readers from different parts of the country who, when we are about to publish something about a part of Canada that we don't have direct context, if we could just like get somebody to read the piece and let us know like, oh, well, you're missing a whole side of this. And if we had kind of like a Rolodex of like, if, if it's in inland BC, here's who we call. If it's from over here, here's who we call. Do you think that could, could work? Because I think this is the kind of story that if anybody in Newfoundland had read it before we published it, who was paying the slightest attention to Bill 29 and this whole issue, they could have said, you guys are way off base with this. I mean, that could work. I think maybe the obvious step of what to do is to contact some of the local reporters out there. I, I have a lot of sympathy for Jacob. I, I'm also from Nova Scotia. And I, a few years ago when I was uh, working for the Halifax Chronicle Herald, I got sent to Newfoundland to do a, a political story there. And it's very uncomfortable when you're going into a situation that you really don't know anything about and you don't know what's true or what's technically true but misleading. You just feel like you don't have your feet under you. Uh, the first thing I did was I, I sat down with uh, David Cochran of CBC to have a coffee, uh, talked to James McLeod, just talked to the people who knew and just basically peppered them with questions to try to get as much of a foundation uh, under, under me before I wrote the story. And I don't know how well it worked or not, but I think it felt like I had a much, much better grasp finally by the time I was interviewing the politicians than it would have if I had just gone in cold. I mean, if you guys had ran that story by someone like Cochran or McLeod, uh, I think they could have very easily flagged some issues for you. I mean, and I think most I think most reporters, they're not going to want to do a full copy of it. But if you just say, hey, look, did we get this more or less right? I think they'll be willing to help you out. I mean, maybe not you. You're widely hated. Everyone kind of hates you. But, like, you know, in general, in general, it would work. If it was Jacob or if it was our editor, Jane, then, then they would have, yeah. yeah. I guess the, I, we have a reluctance because we cover the media to basically give the media our stories before we publish it. seems counterintuitive. But, uh, all right, R- journalists are also welcome to apply to be a Canada Land fact checker. Uh, email editor at canadalandshow.com if, if you care to help us out in these instances. I need to send out a trigger warning right now before we play the next bunch of clips If accounts of child abuse and sexual abuse are triggering for you, you may find this next clip upsetting. Sometimes if we don't do his way in basketball, we get slapped on the head. He would target the slowest people, and I was one of the slowest ones, so I got hit most of the time. He started with my legs and then putting his hand up and he put his hand where it wasn't supposed to go in my privates. So those are the voices of uh, Beverly Abraham, Kathy Woodgate, and Ronnie Alec. Those are three First Nations Canadians from uh, the Burns Lake community in British Columbia who said and who say to this day they claim that John Furlong, the former head of the Vancouver Olympics, abused them when he was their phys ed teacher at the Immaculata Catholic School in the late 60s, during a period of John Furlong's life that he did not include in his memoir. Uh, Paul, this Furlong story has been the subject of uh, litigation. I know it's not one that you're uh, terribly familiar with, um, but I'm going to say a few things here. Those voices that we just played for you, we got those from an old episode of CBC's The National, a report by Duncan McHugh. You won't find that report online anywhere. And you won't hear those people's voices in this article that just ran in the National Post and the Vancouver Sun, this uh, feature profile of John Furlong. I have strong opinions about the John Furlong case. Right now, I'm just going to stick to the facts. The facts are that John Furlong this week came back in the public eye by his own choice. Uh, he's sort of rehabilitating his public image. He gave a speech on Wednesday to the Vancouver Board of Trade uh, titled Unbreakable 
unbreakable John Furlong, and he billed himself for this talk, The Ultimate Crisis Manager. And he gave this uh, 90-minute interview to uh, a sports columnist named Cam Cole of the Vancouver Sun, and then it was picked up by the National Post and ran uh, nationwide. And the National Post headline called the allegations of abuse, the ones that we just heard and many others, false. That's what the National Post called them, false allegations. Cam Cole in the piece called them untrue. And in the piece, Cam Cole described John Furlong as a hero. Here is something else that Cam Cole wrote. He wrote, one by one, the allegations, which had first appeared in the Georgia Strait newspaper, fell apart when tested by the courts. That is a false report. That is incorrect, that Cam Cole quote. Uh, None of the allegations from the Georgia Strait newspaper article were ever tested in the courts. The only allegations that ever made it to trial were Laura Robinson's, the journalist Laura Robinson's allegations against John Furlong, that, that Furlong made libelous, defamatory statements about her. And that is where so much of this has has, has been, is immediately when this report came out, Furlong uh, attacked Laura Robinson, and uh, he sued her, she sued him, and a lot of the public conversation about this has been about this journalist versus John Furlong. That libel case that Robinson waged against Furlong uh, this past September, listeners will remember, Madam Justice Catherine Wedge of the Supreme Court of British Columbia ruled that because John Furlong was defending himself against a serious attack, he did not need to be accurate in his comments about Robinson or to require proof for the things he said about her, and Robinson lost that case. The facts are that the First Nations accusers, the adults who accused John Furlong of accusing them when they were children in his care, those facts, their affidavits that they swore were true and signed, were excluded from evidence in the trial, and they were excluded in the National Post feature about John Furlong. We have decided to publish those full accounts. The signed sworn affidavits that these people made about things that they say John Furlong did to them when they were children. It's enough already of the reporter versus John Furlong. It's enough of the sideshow. There are people who have never changed their tune. They've never recanted. They say these things happened to them. And it's time that people had a chance to just read in their own words what these people say happened to them and read John Furlong's response and make up their own minds. And if they go to CanadaLandShow.com, they can do so right now. Yeah, I mean, that piece was um, the Cam Cole piece. Uh, yeah, there's, an, there, there's an industry word for, for those pieces, which maybe I'll not say just given the context of this discussion, but it's a euphemism for oral sex. And uh, that piece was, uh, let's just say, very, very one-sided. I was actually taken aback that the National Post agreed to publish that because uh, sometimes you read something where a reporter doesn't even try to feign objectivity, and uh, geez, that was one of them. Well, I asked Cam Cole, did you interview any of John Furlong's accusers before writing this? And he says, no, this was not an investigative piece. Fair enough, but... Yeah, but that, that's the first things that some reporters use to justify bullshit. It's, well, did you actually verify any of this? Well, no, it's not that kind of story. I, I, you know, it, there, it doesn't... Basic fact-checking or basic fairness is not limit, limited to investigative pieces. It should be part of everything that we publish in a newspaper. And uh, I mean, I, I just, that's, that's not a very good excuse. I think that uh, so many of these excuses always rely on the reader knowing one kind of piece from another and understanding the ambitions of a piece and all this insider classification. 
whatever. It's it's an article in the newspaper by John Furling, and it states as fact that the allegations are false and untrue. It's not an investigation, and yet it has a verdict in it. You see this type of thing a lot, and geez, I was reading a story just a couple weeks ago that uh, involved a summary of a court case, and you could tell that the reporter had not actually read the court filings at all. I think sometimes it comes down to laziness, fact-checking, talking to people, looking up court documents. These are time-consuming things. They take work. They are, of course, a core part of a journalist's job, but sometimes people get lazy, and it's nothing. there's nothing easier than talking to one person and doing a sole-sourced interview and putting it out into a story. That, and you, you sadly see that all the time. Look, everybody makes mistakes, but the post, I've written about this in the past, on this case has been atrocious. And now we're in the realm of my opinion, but the post has been awful with the Furlong Robinson case. Yeah, I, I don't know enough like the, enough of the details of the case to really like get, get into that much, but I can just say, having even just read that story and you just as a reporter looking at it, it's like, well, this is, this is wow. Again, well, it's a blowjob piece, as we say. Like, it's a completely, completely sycophantic piece. So I, I don't know. I don't know why they uh, ran it, to be honest. That was your Canada Land Shortcuts. Thank you very much. You can email me always at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all and I respond when I can. I'm on Twitter at Jesse Brown. Paul, where can people find you? At BuzzFeed Canada. So please read our stuff. We actually do news. I'm also on Twitter at PD McLeod. That's P-D-M-C-L-E-O-D. Our website is canadalandshow.com where you can sign up for Not Sorry, our weekly newsletter. Our crowdfunding site is at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. I make the show with Katie Jensen. The next episode of CanadaLand will be up on Monday, and the next episode of CanadaLand Commons will be up on Tuesday. If you like this show, please support it. 